Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on 101.9 High FM on the Finding Human program. And my guest today is Rebetzin Sarah Jochevet Rigler. And I'm looking at her on, my, on the computer. And that um, when they said just now about inspire others, that's certainly what we're going to be trying to do today. And I know you will do that. Rebetzin Sarah, welcome. I would like to just uh, introduce you a bit. I first of all would like to thank Dr. Les Glassman for setting this interview up uh, between the two of you. I really appreciate it, Les. And also, if you want to hear more from um, Rebets and Sarah, Kathy actually um, interviewed her in August in 2021 with Rabbi Yomtov Glazer. And I would advise you to go on to that if you want to hear more. It was on Kathy Kaler's podcast, you'll find it. Now, Sarah, you have come a very long and winding road indeed towards your path. And I would love you to actually say hello and then to tell us a little bit about your path. Well, first of all, shalom from my house in the old city of Yerushalayim. I'm, I don't know if I'm the first time that you've had someone actually on your program from inside the walls of Jerusalem, very close to the Temple Mount, but uh, it is. That's where, that's where we're, we're broadcasting from, and that's always very special. This is a podcast, so I can't show the listeners my 900-year-old home, but there, there is a there's also a video that you're making a video of it, correct? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so I just want to show them here. This is like this is the the arch ceilings of my 900-year-old home, which which we know from a place where the mezuzah was, that it was a Jewish home before 1948, before the War of Independence. Anyway, um, my, my long and winding road started in Philadelphia. I was raised, born and raised near Philadelphia um, to a conservative Jewish family. I don't think you have conservative in South Africa. We have right? reform and orthodox and... Yes. Um, so conservative is very much started as an American phenomenon. Yeah. But so we were very, very into Jew, the synagogue. My father was the life trustee of the synagogue. We went to services every Friday night, late Friday night services. Kept kosher at home, but it, but we we didn't learn Torah, and we didn't know real Judaism, and it didn't feed me spiritually at all. Although I was very very involved in it, you know, I was the head of my of my synagogue youth group, and I was. Uh, you know, went to afternoon, two nights a week, Hebrew school. Mm. I didn't go to Jewish day, so I went to public school. And then uh, two nights a week, I went to Hebrew school until I was 18 years old and went away to college. And then I went to a secular Jewish university called Brandeis. And I was, I was feeling very spiritually, like, not fed. And in my junior year of college, I got credit for it. It was a junior year of college program. I went to India. And um, were you a seeker always? Do you think, looking back on your life? That's the word. So I've, I've always been a seeker, and I've always been seeking a way 
to get close to God, but um, I didn't because I didn't find it in Judaism, the conservative Judaism that I grew up in. I, I went to India, and there I found a guru who taught me really the first really really important lesson of my life, which was that I had thought up to that time very middle class Jewish mentality that that life was about getting more and more of an education, enhancing the mental, that the, that the ceiling of one's reality was the mental, intellectual. So that I was felt my, I felt my identity was I was, a, I was a mind inside a body. That's who I thought I was. And then I found a guru in India who was both a great mystic and a great uh, scholar, of, a Sanskrit scholar, who taught me that, no, I'm a soul who has a mind inside a body. And learning about the soul, you know, something that you couldn't measure in a laboratory or, or touch with your hands, but, that the, but a reality more real than the material world, in fact, was absolutely a life changer for me. So it spoke but, to your soul. Yes, spoke to my soul. It's like you, we all have this phenomenon where we hear something for the first time and yet we've always known it. Mm. And, that's how I felt about this I, this revelation hmm. that I am a soul. So once I determined, I realized that I'm a soul who has a mind inside a body, my whole uh, direction in life changed because until then I wanted to, you know, develop the mind. Go after graduating college, go to go get a graduate degree and another graduate degree. Very Jewish thing to do in those days in America. And uh, but once I realized I was a soul. That's my essential identity. Then my life became a process of trying to develop the soul. I mean, I say develop the soul with quotes around the word develop because the soul is always perfect, but meaning have more of an awareness of my own, of, of, of making my life congruent with the spiritual reality of the soul. Now, you know, I was listening to one of your uh, podcasts on your new YouTube channel, which we will be giving out, which is actually fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And one of the things you did say, I know that your YouTube channel is called From Within the Walls of Jerusalem, Gems of Jewish Wisdom and Practical Life Tools. You can find that on YouTube under sarahrigler.com, or otherwise you can look up her website on Chai FM. We've got it. But in that, you said that in one when I was following uh, your path, that you, you went through the different stages of your path, you said you were a universalist. And then you said something about St. Francis of Assisi and uh, her way to God and, and his, was an abbess. Is that right? His way. No, St. Francis. I'm sorry, his way. So, sorry. Yes. I said, well, well, the context of that, so let me like catch you up on, on the story for your listeners. I went back and my, after one year in India, I went back, finished my degree at Brandeis, and then I was, it was clear to me that a spiritual path had to be a full-time thing. And I was, looked first in Judaism to find, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, kind of, it's very ironic. This is part of the story. I don't remember if I tell on my YouTube channel, but... Uh, I came back to Brandeis and people were saying, oh, you missed him. There was a rabbi here the year that you were in India. There was a rabbi here. Now he's not here anymore at Brandeis. He went to Harvard, but he's uh, he's like, he has a really, you know, something really new and fresh in Judaism. And I thought, well, that's great. And I called him, his name was Rabbi Art Green. He was um, 
that time a conservative rabbi, he became Reconstructionist, uh, the dean of the Reconstructionist Seminary, in fact, in, in uh, Philadelphia eventually. He started the Chabura movement. But so I called him and, you know, he was always busy, busy, busy. Finally, at much later in the year, right a few days before my graduation from college, I called him as a last chance to, you know, from, to meet with you. And he said, okay, if you can meet with me at midnight at Harvard Square, I can talk to you. <laughs> so We're going to get back to Harvard Square in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson and on the Finding Human program and I'm back with my guest, Rebetzin Sarah Jochevich Rigler. Hello, Rebetzin Sarah, I'm back with you and you were talking about the square at midnight. <laughs> uh, Harvard Square at midnight with Rabbi Art Green. So I asked him for, I had learned to meditate in India, the year I was there, and I, that was to me like the, the practical way to achieve God consciousness. I asked him for a Jewish place to meditate or a Jewish place to like practice spiritual practices full time. I didn't know a single Orthodox Jew. I didn't know about mitzvot. I didn't know that the path of Judaism is a full time path. <laughs> I had no idea. And he couldn't guide me to any, you know, to any full-time Jewish thing. So he told me about this ashram halfway between Boston and Cape Cod that he had visited the previous Sunday. And it had a genuine Indian guru, a woman who had come to America. This was 1970. So she had come to America in 1926. And I went and, vis and the day after graduation, I went to that to visit, check, and check what that ashram was. And I ended up staying there for 15 years Good as a monastic The beautiful place, 21 acres of woods, a mile and a half from the ocean. The guru was a, was a real Indian guru, uh, what we called her Mataji. And I stayed there for 15 years. The main path was meditation. And as you mentioned, we were universalists. We believed that all paths are like so many paths up the mountain, but at the top of the mountain, they all meet. So in November of 1984, we invited a, a Jewish speaker. We, had, we always had speakers from all different religions, so, but we never had an Orthodox Jewish speaker before. And this was Rabbi Joseph Pollack, uh, from, who was the Hillel Rabbi at Boston University. And he came and he spoke about love of God, even unto madness, quoting Maimonides. Mm. Well, I had studied Maimonides in, after, in evening Hebrew school, so I knew he wasn't a fringe figure. I knew this was mainstream Judaism. But believe me, Sue, I had never heard the words love of God spoken in our synagogue. Mm. Never. Mm. The word God was rarely spoken, but love of God was never spoken. So this was like, I sat there thinking, how can this be Judaism? And I never heard of it. Like, I don't know it. Like, you know, this is like, it was just a total mind blower to me that Judaism had anything to do with love of God, which I had been spending 15 years pursuing a path of love of God. So um, the rabbi invited me to come for a, a Shabbat meal, to first, yeah, for to spend a Shabbat with his family in Boston. And I was like, you know, I took down his number on a little scrap of paper and put it in a drawer. And I thought, I'm not going to this Orthodox rabbi for Shabbos because I know what he'll try to do try to get me out of the ashram but it was this was 1984 and it, that was a very bad year for the new age movement 
um, virtually every new age guru and Zen Roshi and Jane teacher, every one of them, one after another, like a like dominoes, turned out to be having there were sexual scandals mm. involving these teachers who were preaching celibacy, but ending up having uh, sexual affairs with their students. So it was a very bad and disillusioning year for the New Age world. And finally, in February of 1985, I opened the drawer, I took out Rabbi Pollock's number, dialed the phone, a rotary dial, not a push dial, this is 1984. And I went to him for a Shabbat. It was very nice. And at the end of that Shabbat, he was doing um, a Malava Malka, Saturday night like song fest at a certain synagogue, Rabbi Nehemia Poland's synagogue in Everett, Massachusetts, like the suburb of Boston. And he invited me to go along and I went and he played you know, music on his guitar and it was very nice ruach. But I picked up a brochure at the, of this in that synagogue. They were doing this spiritual series. Rabbi Pollock was one event. But coming up in two weeks was going to be Rabbi David Din, who had come from Borough Park, Brooklyn, and he was going to be teaching on Judaism as a yoga. And I thought, wow, I've got to go here. So I went. And and he spoke the words that totally changed my life. He said that the word halacha, and I knew the word halacha meant Jewish law. He said the word halacha comes from the root word meaning meaning to go, to walk. He said Judaism is a spiritual path. It takes you somewhere. And I thought, oh, are you kidding? I knew thousands of Jews. I went to Brandeis when it was 80% Jewish. I came from a very strong Jewish community in, in uh, the Philadelphia area. I knew literally thousands of Jews. and I didn't know a single Jew who regarded Judaism as a spiritual path that takes you somewhere. Hmm. So I heard that and I was like, what? If Judaism is a spiritual path that takes you somewhere. It ended up, I had written a book that year. It was a biography of my guru's guru, Swami Paramananda. And she gave me as a reward, $2,000 and two months to go anywhere I wanted. And at that, we were, when I came to the ashram in 1970, we were, we were getting $10 a month <laughs> pin money. All our expenses were taken care of. And by the time I left, we were getting $20 a month. So $2,000 was a huge amount. And I ended up um, following Rabbi David Din down to, uh, to New York, to Brooklyn, and learning with him and another rabbi named Rabbi Mayor Fund. And, um, and Rabbi Mayor Fund said to me, if you really want to learn Judaism, you have to go to Jerusalem. So I came to Jerusalem in the end of June 1985. And I started learning here at a place called Neve Yerushalayim. I'm sure that some of your listeners have mm. uh, been there. It, uh, it was built as an English-speaking yeshiva for mm, My women. daughter was there. Mm. <laughs> so I'm sure many of your listeners know about Neve Yerushalayim. It was an amazing place. I mean, really teaching Torah and Rebetzin support Heller became my Rebetzin very quickly. I followed her around from class to class. I was just blown away by her by her intellectual brilliance. I mean, I never met anybody before or since more brilliant than Robinson Heller. This like photographic memory, like just knew everything. But in addition to that, um, she was the mother of, at that time, nine children, so eventually 14 children. <laughs> and like, just like combined everything. She combined devotion to family, devotion to God, devotion to Torah learning, 
Hesed, doing, you know, mm-hmm. like helping people in major and minor ways. And, uh, and so when my two months was over, I meditating at the Kotel by midnight, midnight seems to be my time. And it was clear to me that it was the will of God for me to stay in Jerusalem, and I did. So when you asked me before about this quote from St. Francis, the quote is by Nick and Z- Cousin Zakas, Nicholas Cousin Zakas's book called St. Francis, which is a fictionalized uh, version of the life of St. Francis, a saint in the Catholic Church. And, uh, and he has St. Francis going to the holy, the holy man and saying, what is the way? And the holy man answers, it's, what is the path? The holy, man, the holy man answers, it's not a path, it's an abyss, mm-hmm. jump. So I jumped. You've jumped many <laughs> times. Yes, I did. And you, well, you, you know, Riverson, Sarah, what I'm hearing also is as you've jumped, you've also jumped from the shoulders of giants who have mm-hmm. helped you with to jump over that huge abyss. And so you have had people come into your life, whatever they were, um, whether it was at the ashram but they're people who have inspired you to move that step forward. Yes, yes. I was very privileged, completely blessed again and again, as you say, Sue. The very first night I came to Israel in 1985, I met not only Rebbe St. Heller, but I met the Rebbe of Amshinov, who became my Rebbe. And in those days, it wasn't as, it was possible to see him. It was almost easy to see him late at night. But uh, nowadays it isn't. But mm-hmm. he, he guided. He has been my guide um, and my uh, my rebbe since then. And I also became just that first summer. I became acquainted with Rebbe Sinhayasar Kramer, with about whom I wrote. Became very very close to her. Uh, hidden sadek, as they say, mm-hmm. the Judaism that the world is sustained on the merit of thirty six hidden sadikim. So her husband was thought to be one of those thirty six Lama Tzadik, but I'm, I'm sure that Rebison Hayasar was also one of those 36, and I wrote my first book, Holy Woman, mm. about her. You um, know, let me just pick up on that, on your books, because you are a, a prolific writer, and I have many of your books. I would actually recommend that whoever's listening in, please go on to Sarah Regler, Jochebed Regler's website, and look at the, the names of her books, Lights from Jerusalem, Battle Plans, God Winked. Oh, I love that. The other one that I also loved was uh, Lessons from Spiritual Adventures, Heaven Prince, I loved. And Mm -hmm. so, so many books. We're going to be discussing your latest book shortly, which is about the Gilgulim, the reincarnated souls from the Holocaust. But before we get there, I would like to just talk about you. You actually said in one of your podcasts that you believe that we come in with two envelopes. And mm. I didn't get to know what the two envelopes were. What are they? Well, first of all, this is not an original teaching by me. I have no original teachings. I, everything I teach is Torah and everything has sources, but don't ask me for the sources because I'm not as so good at remembering the sources, but everything is as, sourced. As long as you um, inspire with the words you, you repeat from your okay. sources. But the idea of two envelopes is my original idea. Everybody comes into this world, the, the Vilna Goan, and I know that yeah. Jews of South Africa are all 
they're descended from people, from Jews from Lithuania. So the Vilna Gaon was your patron saint. And the Vilna Gaon <laughs> said that we come to this world in order to do tikkun, to fix a negative character trait. It could be anger or cowardice or stinginess or uh, selfishness or I mean, there's, a, there's no lack of negative character traits. And each person has one predominant negative character trait that they need to fix. And that's called tikkun and that's one envelope, a negative thing you need to fix. And the, but the other envelope is called is yiyud, which is your mission. We all come into this world with a unique positive mission, something we're supposed to accomplish in this world. So like, that's the second thing, like we, could, we, we, have, to, we have to do both. We have to fix the, the negative and build the positive, which can be something like in the external world, like starting a, a, a radio show mm. called, you know, being human, mm. you know, and influencing people that way. That, that is no doubt to your life mission because you're doing it and it's having a very big effect. And when you do your life mission, you feel like, ah, yes, you know, this is, you, feel vi you feel vibrancy, mm. even though it's a lot of hard work. And, um, so those are the two envelopes. And then yes. you said something also very, which is very relevant for us now, um, which is uh, you spoke about COVID and um, how you, you actually felt it, 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 it had come in as a, it's an earth-shaking event. And you, you mentioned destroying the three false gods that it's done. Would you just pick up on that? That's not on my channel. That must have been in one of my articles. Yes, it was. It was on one of your articles. But uh, the... I'm very for H. And I want to mention why you're because you're mentioning my articles and I'm just referring it. My articles are on H.com, the website H.com. An article is going up today. This is Tuesday, whatever day it is, March 29th. An article is going up H.com today, which is one of the most exciting articles I've ever written because it's one of the most exciting stories I've ever uncovered about um, a, a Jewish a woman born to Jewish parents in France, born to a self-hating self -hating Jewish father, and we know there are plenty of those around, and uh, a Jewish mother who died when she was 11 years old, so she was stuck with this father, married again, a non-Jew, and, and stripped her off to boarding school. She ended up coming to England and, and marrying a Yemenite Muslim and converting to Islam. Huh. And it's a long story how she became one of the darlings of the mullahs in Iran, because although her husband was Sunni, is practiced Sunni Islam, she was attracted to Shia Islam. She became a Shiite. And she somehow the doors opened to her, she was invited to Iran, and she became really the darling of the mullahs there. And then something happened, you'll, you'll read about it. And I hope you're all your readers, all your listeners will read this article on H.com. I'm also talking about it. I tell the story on my YouTube channel going up today. Yes, so and I, I see to... it's going to be premiered today, I saw. Oh, oh and I have to tell you also that so I'm doing a, a live interview with this woman. Her name is Catherine Parishakdam on Sunday, this coming Sunday, on my YouTube channel. So it's um, going to be 8 p.m. in Israel, which would probably be 7 p.m. here. In South Africa, and I hope you, Sue, and all your listeners will listen to this live uh, interview with Catherine uh, 
Parashaktam. Definitely. I just, you know what? The one that I did re- uh, listen to, I've been going through your the, the your new YouTube channel, which I love. The only way up is uh, out is up. I thought it was fantastic. And I'm not even going to tell our listeners about that because I'd like them to to look up themselves. And then, of course, the hope of a hero about Ram, Rev, Rav Chaim uh, Kanevsky. If you would like to contact us, please do so on 34519 or telegram us on 061-895-1019. Now, going back to covid and oh, the yes, the, the question that I asked you about that, and you said the that there was the destroying of the three false gods. Just mention so that because it's so relevant. Okay, one false god is money, economy. Like I have my security. In Hebrew, the word for security is bitachon. It's also the word for trusting God. Mm. But people think their security is their stock investments or their money. You know how much they have of how much are you worth? <laughs> how much money do you have, or how many investments do you have? How much real estate do you own? So, uh, so COVID really made a direct hit on the economy in, in, in every country, certainly here in Israel and America, uh, because like it depends what your unless you had stock in uh, in Pfizer or something like that. You, you, people lost a lot of money and it came out of the blue and people had no way to know that the, like the world would go on lockdown mm-hmm. for almost a year. So that was one like, you know, security that proved, you know, that we saw was not security at all. We're going and to another- get back to that shortly, sorry, but we're going to get back to our, the three false gods straight after this. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Only on 101.9 High FM. I'm back with uh, Rebetzin Sarah Yochevet Rigler. And I'm sorry about that interruption there when you were in the middle of telling us about the three gods. And then we're going to go on to your new book. So tell me, so the three gods were the the destroying, uh, the economic security, the destroying of that material security, making us question that. And what was the second Second was science. Science came in when science, like, came in with a bang into the Western world, into basically in, in the 19th century. Vast parts of the population thought that it was a replacement for religion, because you know religion you couldn't prove, but science was all objectively proven, and many people replaced that there was early in the, in the first half of the 20th century, there were all these debates about science versus religion. Like there are two opposite things. You either believe in religion, which can't be proven, or you believe in science, which can you know, is objectively proven. And I think COVID has, uh, has shown us that, I mean, with, with COVID, like we kept looking to the scientists and they said contrary things and they kept going back on those. So, so, you know, the need for masks or not masks, the need to, uh, you know, the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I live in Israel, I'm triple vaccinated. Uh-huh. Um, but, but there were a lot of major scientists from, from, you know, Harvard and Yale and Cambridge who and Oxford who were saying that, uh, you know, that, that there might be dangers to the vaccination. Science were contradict. Scientists were contradicting themselves, mm-hmm. and we should have learned this years ago. When 
you know, when, when the scientists who discovered the Big Bang Theory, which said that the, that the universe had a point, an origin and a point of time, which really validated the theologians and the Torah, which says, you know, Beratius bara Elohim, the God created the world at a point of time. Before that, they, before that, scientists had believed that the universe was, was eternal, that it had no uh, point in time of origin. So uh, Albert Einstein is brilliant, though, the greatest scientist. <laughs> Albert Einstein didn't believe it. He wouldn't believe it because it just, it just went against his whole way of looking at the world. And he had to actually go to, to the, where they had the Hubble uh, telescope in a, where they had heard the, these echoes of the Big Bang. And, and it, it, it took him a couple of years to, be, to allow himself to let the evidence convince him of something that, he, that went against his worldview. And I think that, so science is definitely a false god. Not that we, we have to rely on science for, right. for so much to believe that science encapsulates, you know, the object, objective truth of the universe. is That it can't control the universe. God. It's a false god. Mm. And then the other false god that you did mention was a political system, the chaos politically. And, yes. you know, we can have a we can actually have a, a whole program on that and also on Ukraine and the Jewish prime minister and president at the moment, which uh, I think falls very much into your your next uh, what we're going to be discussing now is I've been here before because I find it particularly interesting that in this time of absolute chaos, who should be standing out there? But Belensky and Grossman, as the prime minister, the Ukraine became the first country other than Israel to have a Jewish head of state and head of government. So I think that can follow on where we are going to be discussing now. Robertson Sarah Rigler has written this book, I've Been Here Before, When Souls of the Holocaust Return. I find it particularly interesting, and my son brought me a copy back from Israel, so I'm very fortunate to have it, because my, my line of work has been accompanying people till the end of their lives and then seeing them being welcomed by souls who are waiting for them and literally really? being able to hold hand over with great comfort to me and to them, to the souls that are waiting to receive them. So your work... Has is is almost I wouldn't say opposite, but falls in very much with my work. So I'm incredibly interested, also because we in our my own family there are quite a few of us who have definitely were were souls of the Holocaust reincarnated, but I'm not going to go into that now. But tell me a bit about how this book came about. I wrote this book um, called I've Been Here Before When Souls of the Holocaust Return. After eight years, it took eight years of research and writing. I had over 450 people who filled in my uh, online survey and another 100 people who wrote me their experiences by email. Um, I wrote it for three reasons. One is that I myself am most reincarnated soul from the Holocaust, and I couldn't make sense of my life and the passions that I had from the time I was a very young child, my tremendous hatred of Germany and everything about German. And I, was so I burned with this hatred, which did not come from my family. My, I have, I had no Holocaust survivors or non-survivors in my family. My, my grandparents came 
from Ukraine to uh, America in 1902. So it didn't come from my family, this antipathy toward everything German. And I didn't understand where it came from when I was 14 years old. Uh, I, I was starting uh, at high school. I had to pick a foreign language to learn. So our choices were French, Spanish, or, or German. And all my friends chose French or Spanish, and I chose German. And my friends said, why, why would you choose German? You hate everything German. But I, I had such an obsession with it. People ask me, how do you know whether you're a soul from the Holocaust? Some people have dreams. Some people have flashbacks. Some people have you know, deja vu experiences, all kinds of things. I talk about a different chapter in my book for each thing, phobias. But the common denominator of, of reincarnated souls of the Holocaust is they all have an obsession mm. with the Holocaust, mm. which manifest in one of two ways. Either they have to read everything that's written about it or and see every movie and just like go to every museum or the opposite. Absolutely. They cannot bear to read anything mm. or see any or go to any holocaust museum so but it's always there's always that that obsession with the holocaust so the one the first reason i, I wrote the book was to let out of the closet all these people like me oh and i didn't say that so i was 14 years old i decided to learn german and after one week of german i had a dream in fluent german and I couldn't understand any of it until I learned about reincarnation. I learned about reincarnation in India, but it is a Jewish concept. And the whole second chapter of the book discusses that, you know, the Jewish sources of the idea of called Gilgul Neshamot, the, the uh, recycling of souls. Um, We're going but to I'm get not back to that right shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on 101.9 High FM, and I'm back with Rebetzin Sarah Jochebet Rigler, and we're talking about her new book, uh, I've Been Here Before. And I'm sorry I had to interrupt you there. And um, Rebetzin, you were in the middle of telling us about your actual own your experience. You'd been learning German, and then you had this dream of influent German. Yes, so... So when I learned about reincarnation, I understood that suddenly it was like all the puzzle pieces fit. Without the concept of reincarnation, I couldn't understand my own life and the passions I felt and my experiences. I also had a, a panic attack in Vienna uh, when I, on my way back from India when I was 21. It was really like I had everything only fit when I put in the puzzle pieces of reincarnation. But... I certainly wasn't going to talk about this to anybody because they would think I was weird. But sitting here in this living room from where I'm, uh, from where I'm broadcasting today. Your 900-year-old Jerusalem home. Yes. So I was sitting on the couch with my friend Sarah, Hannah Sarah Zeller years ago, maybe 10 years ago or more. And, uh, and I confessed to her that, you know, I think I'm a soul from the Holocaust. And she said to me, so am I. And she told me about experience that she had as a four-year-old child. When, when a four-year-old child has an experience, it didn't come from reading a Holocaust mm. book or seeing a Holocaust movie, because, uh, you know, obviously parents don't expose young children to that kind of thing. Anyway, and also most of the people who I, uh, whose testimonies I cite in my book were born within 10 to 15 years of 
after the Holocaust when there were not. <laughs> it's hard to believe today when there's so many Holocaust books and movies out. But in those days, there weren't. There was like one Holocaust book, coming down to Auschwitz. I remember reading it over and over again mm. as a 13-year-old. Anyway, I realized that this that there this was a huge population of people who had been who are reincarnated souls of the Holocaust. And who, each one of them, people would, when they filled in my survey, people always said, oh, I thought I was the only one. Like everybody thought they were the only one and mm-hmm. they thought they were crazy or something was wrong with them. And it, but it turns out this is a really a massive phenomenon. So most um, of them were born after 1945. Yes, yes, almost, almost all of them. You have a, a couple, I've, I think I have two people in my research survey. Uh, among my research group who were born before 1945, which, you know, obviously, look, the Nazis started killing Jews in Poland when they invaded Poland September 1st, 1939. Mm. So a person died in 1939 and come back uh, like 1943. Um, Dr. Miriam Adahan, the famous psychologist, uh, was born in 1943, and she is a reincarnated soul from the Holocaust. Mm. But uh, most of them, yes, were born after 1945, between 1945 and I'd say 1960, like about 80% of my research sample. And Rebison, you know, um, so many Jewish people that I have spoken to, uh, uh, certainly, uh, in, as I say, in our family, we're very much uh, believers of reincarnation, having experienced things ourselves. But um, so many people don't believe that it's a Jewish belief. It's, it actually has amazed me how many people don't think it's a Jewish belief. Yes, well, so that always, that kind of amuses me because I don't know what what branch of Judaism they're, uh, <laughs> they're, they believe in, but the, in, among Orthodox Jews, you either believe in, you're either Hasidic, and of course the Baal Shem Tov was very much into Gilgal Shamot and told many stories about, you know, explaining why this person is going through this because of what happened in a previous Gilgal. Uh, or you come from that Lithuanian strain that most of your people in South Africa are, are from, and that's go, that is uh, sourced in the Vilna Goan. And the Vilna Goan <laughs> assumed Gilgal Shamot as a given. I mean, nothing to talk about, you know. So I think it comes from again this 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 feeling of of has to be scientifically corroborated in order to be true and everything, which is not Jewish at all. Mm-hmm. You know, what are our sources? So the my favorite my favorite source, and I'm just going to quote this and not go into. You can read the book. The second chapter really gives the sources, but the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, he wrote in. Derech Hashem, the book the Way of God, which is a universally accepted classic in, in the traditional Jewish world. He wrote, God arranged matters so that man's chances of achieving ultimate salvation should be maximized. A single soul can be reincarnated a number of times in different bodies, and in this manner, it can rectify the damage done in previous incarnations, what we talked about, rectification. Similarly, it can also achieve perfection that was not attained in its previous incarnations. So it's right there, as clear as day in Derech Hashem. But I do want to say, Sue, the other two reasons why I wrote the book. One was because Rav Noach Weinberg, the founder of Eisha Torah, Rav Noach Zal, he said to many of the people who he trained to teach, 
But the most important message to get across to anyone that you're teaching is that Hashem loves you. And I always try to get this across in my articles and my teaching. And then there are always... Oh, okay. You're going to stop we, we, I'm actually being told to wrap up. Will you come back on my program so we can discuss this again, please? I'd love to. And I hope people will understand that the book is, is going to be available at the Colwell Bookshop. It's not there, there yet. It will be coming in. They can put their names down at the Colwell Bookshop. Otherwise, you can go onto Amazon and get it there. And then I would suggest that you look up uh, Rebertson Sarah Rigler on YouTube, on her new YouTube. I'm going to have to wrap up now. Craig is telling me to close it off. Thank you so much, Rebertson Sarah Jochebed Rigler. It's been such a pleasure.